If you brought along a copy of the Bible, and I really hope that you did, please turn to Psalm 132. Psalm 132, our scripture passage for this morning. So this is a prayer. This is a prayer that God's people prayed um, as they were waiting on God. They were waiting on God to keep his promise to send the Messiah. And this was one of their prayers that they prayed as they were waiting for God to do that. And we need to learn to pray this prayer ourselves because we're waiting on God. We are especially waiting on God on Sundays like this where this coronavirus and death and danger are striking so close to home for our church. We're waiting on God to keep his promise for Jesus to return, to make all things new, to complete his work of delivering heaven and earth once and for all from death and from suffering. Now, there are three parts of this prayer, and I hope to introduce you to it so that you can pray it more meaningfully, hopefully, than you've ever prayed it before or ever been able to. Now, in the first part of the prayer, it's verses 1 through 7. In the first part of the prayer, God's people, God's, the Israelites, God's ancient people who were waiting on God to send the Messiah, what they did in the first part was they reminded God of David's humble service. This is verses 1 to 7. Start, start, look what it says. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my rest or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So here are God's people saying to God, Remember what David did for you. Remember in particular how he suffered in his service to you. That word in verse 1, remember, Lord, David's favor, all the hardships he endured. Literally, it means afflicted and humbled. My favorite translation of it, the one that I think gets to the heart of it the best, is by the Jewish Publication Society. So this is the Jewish translation of the Old Testament that the most Jewish people would read today. I think it's the very best translation of this. Listen to how they translate it. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, his great self-denial. Because in verses 2 and 3 and 4, that's exactly what we see. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of David, look at this self-denial. I will not enter my rest or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. So they look back and they say, remember how David denied himself so much in order to establish a dwelling place for you. He denied himself a home, a place, rest. Now, remember I said at the beginning, we need to learn to pray this prayer. As we wait on God to keep his promise, to fulfill his vow, to make all things new, to fill the earth with peace and justice and joy, to make every sad thing come untrue, to wipe away tears from our eyes, 
to fill our hearts with unending joy, to flood the earth with his presence, to remove the curse of sin and death from all of our lives? Doesn't this prayer reminding God the Father of David's self-denial remind you of a greater David who did exactly the same thing? Doesn't this remind you of Luke chapter 9, verse 58, when Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has what? Does anybody know this verse? No place to lay his head. Doesn't this remind you of of Philippians chapter 2 that Stephanie read to us, where we should have the same mind in ourselves that Jesus had, that we would deny ourselves, that we would take on the form of a servant? That we would consider others before ourselves. So as we read, as we pray Psalm 132, we get this incredible picture of Jesus. And we should pray to God the Father, reminding him of the son's hardships, of the son's faithful service, of the son's self-denial. We should say to God the Father, remember, O Lord, in Jesus' favor, all the hardships that he endured, how he completed his vows to you, how he denied himself to you, how he did not have a place to rest, how he did all of this in order to establish your dwelling place on earth. That's exactly what we Christians are doing right now. When we gather in worship, we are remembering Jesus' faithful service to the Father, and so we want to worship him. We've said to each other exactly what happens after that, verse 6 and 7. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. As we've remembered Jesus' incredible love for us, we've said to each other this morning, let's go to church. Let's go to his dwelling place. Let's go to be with God's people. Let's go to this place where God's spirit is dwelling. We want, and we're remembering this, and it's driving us here. This is why I think it is so difficult in the midst of this pandemic what it's doing to the church. Because the deep cry of our hearts is to be in the church. A, f- a friend of mine took a couple of months off from the church, and he told me afterwards, I was not a very good Christian. Not just because I, I need the church for some kind of group think, but because it's in the church where the Spirit of God dwells. And as I took time off from it, I found within me that I was missing that. I was missing being among the people of God, in the presence of God, where God's Spirit. Isn't this the cry of our heart? Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And this is making what's going on with this pandemic and why we... The fact that we can't gather like we're accustomed to. That there's not nearly as many of us in here. And that people in our church, Kara Zimmerman texted me this morning, I wish I could be there. I really want to be there. But I have to stay home. Even though her current symptoms of the coronavirus are very mild, she can't come here and it's an ache in her heart. And this leads us, this first part of the prayer, where we're reminding God of the Son, God the Father, of the Son's faithfulness, and it's producing within us a desire to be among God's people, worshiping God in his dwelling place. It leads us in a very concrete and practical and specific way to pray the next part of the prayer, 
verses 8 through 10. Here in this part of the prayer, we ask God to keep his promises. So in the first part, we remind God, the Father, that the Son kept his promise, that he was faithful. And then in the second part, we ask God, the Father, to keep his promise to us. In particular, three promises. Verse 8 is the first one. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Now this, this is very interesting. When was the very first time in the Bible that we learned about God resting? Genesis, at the end of the seven days of creation, after six, after six days of creation, the creator completed his work and rested. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Now listen to these verses, because when you come to a word that's all over the Bible and is important, you really do need to let the Bible fill it up with what it means by that word. And rest is clearly an important word in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, here's the catch. When you read the first chapters of the Bible and it says that God rested, it is not the image that God simply takes a nap. That it's rest in terms of God saying, whoa, that wore me out. That, that was a re really hard week of work. I need to go to sleep. That is not at all the image that you get when you feel the texture of the literature as you read through the Bible. What you see instead is that in Genesis 1, God is creating a dwelling place for himself. God is creating the world as a place for him to reside. And what happens at the end of Genesis chapter 1, at the beginning of chapter 2, is God takes residence in the world he's made. That was God's plan all along. And it's this beautiful image that we find in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? Of Adam walking in the cool of the day with the creator. Why is he doing that? Because the creator is dwelling there. It's this image in Genesis 2 of work in the presence of the creator, the way it's supposed to be, full of joy and meaning and no frustration and no pain and no suffering. It's the image that we get in Genesis 2 of family in a world where God dwells. What does it say about family? And they were naked and unashamed. Here is an image of family without fear or shame or guilt or secrets or loneliness or jealousy. This, this is family the way it's supposed to be. Family where you are fully alive and fully yourself and fully at peace with each other and fully at peace with your role and your idiosyncrasies and your personality and your strengths and your weaknesses. Here's a picture of family where it is utter delight and freedom. And in Genesis 2, when God is dwelling in the earth, we get a picture of art in Genesis chapter 2, the first poem in the Bible. Here is art full of beauty and power. And the ability to create. And so as we pray this prayer today. And we ask God arise. And fill this world. 
Dwell in this world the way you did before sin and the way you will when you return again. Fill up this world with your presence. Rest in this world. That's our prayer. That is our prayer right now. What Gina is going through, she should not be going through. What Vicky and Wes are going through and Laura and all of this death that is stalking our church and our land, we, are cry, we should cry out for God. Arise, God. You gave us a foretaste of it in Genesis 1 and 2. You let us taste it sometimes here in the church. But come, Lord Jesus, and flood this world. Arise and enter into your resting place. You made this world to be your resting place. And then notice what we pray in verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. Righteous priests and joyful saints. Our world needs that. It is cataclysmic when priests aren't righteous. It wrecks people. It destroys communities. We've seen this play out. In the sex abuse scandals of the church. It is equally bad when Christians are not marked by joy. You pray for my righteousness, I will pray for your joy. This is what the world needs. It needs Christians who know real joy in priests who are truly righteousness. Of all people, we should be people of joy. When we gather and worship on Sundays, of all rituals, this ritual should be marked by joy. After all, Christ has died for us. After all, he has made a full atonement for our sins and our guilt is removed. He has defeated darkness. He has defeated the death that stalks our world. And we could go on and on. When we come to the table in worship, I hope you often remember the line in Psalms 23. Psalm 23, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. This morning, this is a feast in the face of death. That there is coming a day when none will go hungry. When all will feast together. And will the, when the king himself will be physically there with us, serving us himself. Pray for your priest to be holy. Pray for all of us to receive the joy of the Lord. And both of these are hard, aren't they? And notice the third prayer. Verse 10. Ask God for a favorable hearing. That's what they do. At the end of their prayer, they say, God, for the sake of your servant David, don't turn away the, your, the face of your anointed one. This, this is us saying at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake, don't turn your face away from us. It reminds me of the prayer that we pray virtually every Sunday in our church in confession. We don't pray it at Advent, but in confession, remember our normal prayer is most merciful God. We confess that we have sinned against you. And then at one point we say, for the sake of Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us our sins. We are your children. We are your family. Don't turn us away. For the sake of Jesus, hear our prayer when we ask you to arise and 
come into your dwelling place and rest. When we ask you to give your priests righteousness and your, your congregation, your saints, joy, do this, O Lord, for the sake of Jesus, in his name. So that's the second section of the psalm. The first is we remind God of the faith, God the Father, of the faithful, humble obedience of God the Son. In the second section, we ask God to help us in our needs. And notice the third section of the prayer. We remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. This is verses 11 through 18. Look at verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. We remember that Jesus did this. That Jesus was of David. That he kept the promises. Notice verses 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly profess her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. And we read that and we remember Jesus in Israel feeding the hungry, making bread for them. We remember Jesus on the cross in his resting place. Verse 14, her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. And we remember the joy that erupted from the followers of Jesus after the resurrection. And we remember the salvation that clothed them because of what Jesus did on Mount Zion for them. Verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And we remember, don't we? When we read the stories of the crucifixion and we see the shame that covers those who shouted, crucify him. And we see the glorious crown on our Savior's head. It's so important when we pray in times like we're in right now that we have a biblical memory and not just an American memory or a Southern memory or Midwestern memory. It's critical that we, each of us in our church together, that our memories really do stretch back and include our entire family history, the whole Bible. Because that's how we, we become the kind of people who can make the off-the-cuff responses that every day requires of us that are faithful. If we are going to flourish as God's people, we need more data to work with in our memories than our own experiences this past week. Or this past lifetime. Eugene Peterson was a pastor in Bel Air, Maryland, who died a few years ago. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. He wrote a remarkable book that includes a chapter on this psalm. Psalm 132. And he talked about how important it is for us to base our view of God on a long memory that stretches all the way back all the way through God's people, all the way through the Bible. And he gives this illustration that I think makes the point better than I, I could. He, he wrote, what would you think of a pollster, somebody taking a poll, who issued a definitive report on how the American people felt about a new television show if we discovered later that the pollster had only polled one person 
who had only seen 10 minutes of the TV show. Wouldn't we dismiss the conclusions as frivolous? But isn't that exactly the kind of evidence that too many of us base our views of God on? The only person we consult is ourselves, and the only experience we evaluate is the most recent 10 minutes, but we need other experiences. We need the community experience of brothers and sisters in the church, the centuries before us, that provide us with a real memory of God. And and then I love this part. He wrote, A Christian who has David in his bones and Jeremiah in his bloodstream and Paul at his fingertips and Christ in his heart will know how much and how little value to put on his own momentary feelings about God or experiences of God. We've got to read over and over. We've got to read the Bible and study the Bible and learn the Bible until the stories of Abraham wandering in the desert and Hebrews, the Hebrew people enslaved in Egypt and David battling Goliath and Jesus arguing with the Pharisees and Paul writing with the Corinthians until that stuff becomes our memories. Because biblical history is the best kind of memory. It's a good memory. It shows us what doesn't work, and it shows us what does work. You see, learning the Bible is really about learning our family's history. It's about remembering. It's, learning the Bible is like remembering what you put into that soup that made it so good so that you can make it again another day, and it tastes good again. A Christian who doesn't know the Bible is a Christian with a bad memory. You have to start everything from scratch if you're like that. You have to spend too much of your time figuring things out, backtracking, repairing, starting over. But a Christian who practices Psalm 132 verses 11 through 18, who regularly comes to church and remembers the stories of God and God's people, a Christian who regularly reads the Bible and fills her mind and memories with the history of God's actions, that's a Christian with a good memory. And that is a Christian who will learn to not keep repeating old sins, who knows the easiest way through complex situations. And instead of starting each day over, this is a Christian who will continue the family story. And when your memory is good, and when you learn to pray like God's people have always prayed, starting out by reminding God of the faithfulness of the Son, asking Him to keep His promises, and then reminding yourself that He has kept them so many times in the past, that past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, that this faithful God who kept his promise to Israel to bring his son back, that he will return again. When you pray like that and remember like that, then your hope is no longer wishful thinking. Then you have real hope, confident hope. Verse 18, notice, his enemies I will clothe with shame. You remember God did it once. He's done it twice. He's done it three times, a hundred times, a thousand times. He will do it again. And finally, and on his crown, on him his crown will shine. The shame 
of God's enemies. And the glory of God's king will be the final word. Our lives will not be defined by our most recent mistakes, by our most crushing defeats. The triumph of God and his king will be complete. Evil will lie sprawling in defeat and righteousness will flourish in victory. And listen to Psalm Isaiah 65 again. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And they shall not build and another inhabit. And they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.